Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you're using one of those Bibles I mentioned earlier that we've provided for you, you'll find the section we're going to look at today on page 895. And let me remind you, that Bible is there not just for you to, to have open for the next little bit of our time, but for you to take with you. We would love it if you took that home. And we'd love to follow up with you on what you're going to hear from this, from this Bible in the next few minutes together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 6 to 16. I wonder, what do you think are some of the most impactful differences between people? If you had to come up with a list of the differences that really matter, I wonder what would be on it. Maybe introverted people versus extroverted people. That's a big difference. Anyone who's introverted will tell you, especially. I mostly hear about that difference from people on the introverted side. Uh, There are morning people and night owls. I'm tempted to do a show of hands. See how you see yourself. Let's just do it. Show of hands. You're a morning person? Raise your hand. Night owl. Raise your hand. Not everyone participated, but there were more morning people that were proud to say it than night owls. (laughs) Uh, What about people who roll their jeans up and people who don't? There's a lot that that says. Uh, We're not going to get into what it says. Y'all remember those Mac versus PC commercials? Uh, I don't remember, maybe 10 years ago, these were just pure gold. You had the Mac guy who's in the button-up dress shirt but short sleeves. They're like a tie from 20 years earlier. <laughs> and that, was the, that was the PC guy. I said the Mac guy. I mean, the PC guy was the one with the buttoned-up, you know, uh, with his company-issued IBM at his, at his side. And then you got the Mac guy who, I don't remember exactly what he was wearing, but you knew it was too cool for you. Nice cutting-edge haircut. And he was just kind of ironic and detached and cool. Man, those commercials were good, right? There's a whole stream of implications, they're saying, between, between those who have a, a, a Mac at home and those who have a PC. What about, my wife has a theory that, that you're either somebody who likes animals or somebody who likes people, but probably not both. <laughs> not gonna do the show of hands on that one. <laughs> I remember when I, uh, when I first, as a kid, moved into rural Alabama, uh, my dad took a church, First Baptist Church, Frisco City, and we relocated to that area. I was maybe eight years old. And I remember, I mean, I was born in Auburn. But I remember it was striking to me when we moved into this new town that, that the first thing everybody wanted to know about me was whether I was an Auburn or Alabama fan. Like not whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Pentecostal, but are you an Auburn fan or Alabama? Maybe because I was from Auburn, everybody was just an Auburn fan. I'd never heard it before, but man, down there, like that, was, that was business number one. Let's just define our terms here. Where do you stand? That's the line that matters. And there were huge cultural impl- implications. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what those are either. <laughs> Speaking of rural America, I mean, I think one of the, getting some, some more impactful differences I've been seeing more and more articles talking about the fundamental divide between people who are in rural parts of the world, not just America, and and urban parts. Whether you're a a city dweller or a country dweller, it now has huge implications for life. So so much so that that in some way, someone living in in Nashville, Tennessee is going to have more in common with somebody from Paris, France than somebody from Paris, Tennessee. In some real ways, those, those lines are drawn. Uh, with, with impact all the way up and down life. Uh, wealth inequity 
is now becoming an even more and more pronounced difference between people. As the wealthiest of the wealthy get, get even more wealthy at a, at a more rapid pace than ever before, and those who are below the poverty line are having a harder time than ever before climbing above it. That line divides people on, uh, and their experiences on things from, from education to incarceration to family stability to health care to housing and other, many other things all up and down. What, what do you think if you had to say, is the line between people that matters most? Is there a line that's a line of difference that, that's most impactful? In our text, text this morning, Paul argues that there is. That there is actually, of all the different lines that separate people, as important as it might be whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert, there is one line between people that matters most. And he tells us what it is. It, Paul's writing this letter to a church that he founded that after he had moved away began to slip back into what was normal for them in their culture. They lived in a city that was upwardly mobile, that was full of status climbers, and their church reflected this obsession with status. There were people who were lining up behind different teachers, for example, he told us in chapter one, trying to one-up one another by the quality of the teaching they had the, the good sense to prefer. Uh, in, in Corinth, it didn't seem like what the divisions were mattered all that much, just so long as it was clear that there was a line between people and that they were on the right side of it and not the wrong side of it. And Paul's been writing this letter to push back on that, to tell them, no, 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 it doesn't work that way here in the church. All these petty issues don't factor in when you're with Jesus. That was the main theme of chapter one. And now in chapter two, his goal is actually, it's the same. He wants to bring them around, away from this, this prideful posture that they'd had, this self-seeking that they had slipped into. He wants to put their focus right back on what he taught them in the beginning. But in this section we're going to look at this morning, from verse 6 to verse 16 of chapter 2, he actually plays into their obsession with differences between each other, with division, to highlight for them one division that really does matter. The one division that matters most of all. The one they should know about, be clear on. And he tells them that the one line that matters most is the line between those who see the cross of Jesus as beautiful and those who don't. Those who love Christ crucified and those who reject him. That's the line that matters most. And as we walk through this text this morning, I just want to do it in two points, two steps. The line that matters most, we'll unpack that first. And the only way to cross it, we'll unpack that second. The line that matters most and the only way to cross it. I want to begin by reading the text. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in verse 6 of chapter 2 and read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes... Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined 
what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God's revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. Point number one this morning, friends, the line that matters most comes out of verses six to nine. Verses six to nine. Paul wants him to know the line that matters most for all these divisions they're interested in is really the line between those who love the cross of Jesus and those who reject it. There are people who see the cross as life and peace and hope and people who see the cross as one or another sort of foolishness. It doesn't matter, ultimately, whether you prefer Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It doesn't matter whether you prefer a Mac or a PC. It doesn't matter whether you root for Auburn or Alabama or UT or Vandy. In other letters, Paul, Paul writes, he says, it doesn't even matter ultimately whether or not you're, you're a Jew or Greek. Those divisions mattered, but not ultimately. Whether you're male or female, even whether you're slave or free. What matters most, Paul has said, and means here, is that Christ is all in all. There are those for whom Christ is all in all, and those for whom the cross is foolishness. That's the line that matters. Now let me show you where I see him making this point in these three verses, or these several verses here. Uh, pick up with me in verse six. You'll see that he's making this point through several different contrasts. They're all reinforcing the same point, but let me flag each of the contrasts so you can see them for yourself and then try to sum it all up for us at the end. First, there's this contrast that he makes between the wisdom of the cross and the wisdom of the age. He says, we do, among the mature, we do impart wisdom but Paul's not changed his subject here. He's still talking about the cross. That was his subject in chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. And if we weren't plugged into how the context has worked, we might think that now he's moved on to some other subject, you know? Like, especially when he mentions that it's secret and hidden wisdom. It sounds almost like he's got some sort of super spiritual hidden knowledge in mind that he's not even labeling, that he's not even filling in for us. But, but we know better because we've been tracking with what he's doing all the way up to this point. We know that he came to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's his one subject among the Corinthians. He hasn't changed it now. When he says the, talks about wisdom that he's imparting, he's talking about that subject, Christ and him crucified. There is wisdom in it. It's a way of seeing everything. And there is goodness to live on the backside of that revelation. 
There is goodness to experience in life when you see your life as held by the God who sent his own son. So that's the, that's the wisdom he's talking about. That's the wisdom he imparts. But it's different from the wisdom of this age. Second contrast. There's this wisdom that's been decreed before time, the wisdom of the cross, and the wisdom that's doomed to pass away. Did you see that? Look at verse 7, or back to verse 6, rather. There's this wisdom that he's imparting, and then there's a wisdom of this age and of the rulers of this age who were doomed to pass away. Then in verse 7, there's the wisdom that he's imparted, the secret or hidden wisdom of God, God's plan to work through Jesus to save his people, there's that one. It's been decreed before the ages. There's a wisdom that's passing away and one that predates us, not just us as in us individuals in this room, but the world and its, all, and its creation. Before time, this wisdom exists in God's plan. I mean, the thing about the wisdom of this age is that it's always fluid. You know, it needs to move around just to make sure that, that some people are on the inside and other people aren't. Big part of the wisdom of this age that he's been talking about is, is the fact that not everybody gets it. And to make sure not everybody gets it, you got to keep changing the content. You got to recycle it. You got to keep it fresh so that you can be on the inside of something somebody else is on the outside of. Wisdom of this age is more like fashion, less like truth. It's more like the teased bangs and the stonewashed shorts and the bold colors of the, of the 1980s. That was wise in the 1980s. Not so much now. However great the gulf between pottery barn decorating and shabby chic decorating, the one thing they share in common is that 100 years from now, nobody will be interested in either one of them. They're doomed to pass away. They're a wisdom of this age. They're a way of being inside of something that matters now, that someone else is outside of. But it stays fluid. It's doomed to pass away. The, the wisdom Paul is talking about was decreed before the ages. It predates us. It'll last long after we're gone. And then the final contrast, the one, that, the one that all of them are meant to draw together is a contrast between those who he describes as mature and those who are the rulers of this age and all their followers. When he talks about the mature that he shared this wisdom with, Paul's not talking about a special elite class of Christian insiders, you know, like the ones who get it compared to those Christians that don't. That's, that's actually the, the exact opposite of what he's trying to do in this whole letter. That's not what he's talking about here. To be mature is to, to have received the wisdom of the cross. It's to be Christian. That's what he means. And then there are those who follow the rulers of this age. You know, the ones who were of noble birth, the ones with power and influence, the ones who ultimately crucified Jesus. Now, what, what is he doing with all these contrasts? Let me sum it up for you. Can you see that he's, if you draw them all together, he's trying to show them that there's really one division that runs right through people that matters most of all. And it isn't the ones they've been interested in. It really comes down to this. When you look at Christ crucified, what do you see? When you look at Christ crucified, what do you see? The rulers of this age and those who follow them, they put Christ on the cross in the first place. They crucified the Lord of glory, verse 8. 
They weren't seeing in that moment a a hidden secret wisdom, almost too wonderful to believe, now unveiled. They saw a fraud exposed once and for all. Do you remember what the Roman soldiers put above Jesus as he hung on the cross? Put a sign right above his head, King of the Jews. Not a compliment. They were mocking him. This guy thought he was king. He's not. Do you remember what the crowds cried out at Jesus as he hung there dying? He said he could save people. He can't even save himself. If he's who he says he is, why didn't he come on down off that cross right now? He can't. He's a fraud. Look at him. To the mature, to the Christian, the cross means something different altogether. They look at that same scene playing out in exactly the same way. And they see something hidden now revealed. They see something playing out there that would just be too wonderful to imagine if they weren't seeing it right here in our world, in real time, in real space, happening to a real body. See, here's what a Christian sees when they look at that cross. They see a story played out in this moment. They see a backdrop of sin and selfishness. They say, You know, I know I owe my life to God. I know every breath I've ever taken, he gave to me. I didn't deserve it. He just gave it to me for free. And yet I know that over and over again, how often have I neglected him? How often have I I forgotten that I owe everything to him? How often have I forgotten that he's been kind? And how often have I acted like my life is my own? Mine to live as I want. Mine to aim at my goals. Mine to climb my ladder no matter who I step on on the way up. A Christian looks at the problems in this world and they don't see problems out there. They see problems in here. They know every problem out there stems from the same problem that's in here. I put myself first over and over above God and above others made in his image. And a Christian looks at that cross and they say, look what he's done to save me from me why would he come for one who neglected him why would he run after one who rejected him why would he give up something so precious for one who's only ever acted like building up my life is what matters and yet he is there he is he's doing it it's secret and hidden wisdom or as as Paul puts it in his quote No eye has seen or ear heard or heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We see the cross and we think it seems impossible that that could be true, but there it is. It's really happening. It really happened. It's a gift of unimaginable beauty. Too good to believe if we didn't see it for ourselves. A mature Christian looks at the cross and says, there it is all my hope and peace. There it is, all of my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's everything. Friend, if you're considering Christianity this morning, let me encourage you, focus your mind and your effort here on the cross of Jesus. This is where 
our, the, the heart of our, of, our, of our faith really does rest. There, there are other things that we believe about who God is and other things that we believe about who we are and other things we believe about how the world works. This is not everything. And yet there are many, many principles to follow that come with being a Christian. Rules that God has given us that we trust are good for us and good for our neighbors when we, when we obey him. It's important to focus on those. And yeah, there is a whole wide variety of evidence out there for the truth of Christianity. I would encourage you to consider it. I'd love to explore that evidence with you. But what you need to know is that the cross is the center of all of it. The cross is the center. And how we feel about the cross, how we see it, is the dividing line between those who are with Jesus and those who are not. Christians don't believe that, that they've got something figured out no one else has. The line between being a Christian and not being a Christian is not that the Christians are all the do-gooders, they keep all the rules, and those who aren't Christian don't. The line isn't between those who are insightful and intelligent enough to have figured out something everyone else is blind to, those who are too dumb to get it. The line that matters is the line between those whose only hope is in the cross of Jesus and those whose hope is in something else. So, focus here. And my fellow Christians, friends, we have got to guard our hearts and guard one another against any drift from the cross. In every age since Christianity was born, there have always been some things about our faith, things about what the Bible teaches that have been more likable than other things about what we believe in our host culture. Always. There's always been some things that are a little more likable and some things that are less likable. And, and, and with that reality, there's always been a temptation to lean into what is more or less likable and lean away from what is, what is not. There's always been a tendency to play up what, what seems to resonate, what we share with those outside our faith and to play down what we don't. 150, 200 years ago, it was the Bible's ethics that were pretty well liked. You know, Thomas Jefferson, did you guys know he came up with his own version of the Bible? He went into the Bible and he cut out all the miracles, the supernatural stuff what he didn't like. But he loved the ethics. He saw that as crucial for helping to create a people that could govern themselves well. Like we need to follow Jesus' teachings and it'll, all go, it'll go well for all of us. Ethics were, yes, by all means. Supernatural stuff, nah, we got to cut that out. Today, it's just, it's flip-flopped. Today, the supernatural stuff isn't really that much of a barrier, it seems like. I mean, in a culture where Stranger Things is one of the, everybody's favorite TV shows and where the, you got spirituality gurus from all sorts of traditions all over the world that are, that are celebrities, some sense that there's more out there than what we see is, is not a problem. I rarely ever talk to someone who's got a real barrier with, with the fact that the Bible teaches that, that a God intervenes in history and does things that don't fit the laws of nature. But the ethics of the Bible, those are a stretch. Maybe not a, more than a stretch. Those are a reason to move on. Things about basic humanity and gender and sexuality that Thomas Jefferson would have had no problem with are now contested. And, and, and at that time, there was a tendency among Christians to play up what Thomas Jefferson was into. Let's lean in where we're liked. Lean away from what alienates. And we will have that same temptation today. And not just today. Tomorrow, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, we will always be tempted to lean into what's likable. And here's the thing, friends. 
That list has shifted. It's been fluid. But you know what's never been on the list of the likable things about Christianity? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That never makes the list. That's always been shameful. Always been an embarrassment to anyone who doesn't look at that and see in it a hidden wisdom revealed. A a plan of God decreed before the ages. Something so utterly beautiful it would be unimaginable if God had not told us it were true. Friends, the cross will never stay on our list as long as we lean into what's likable. We got to guard ourselves against any drift from it and guard one another as well. Point number one is simply that the line that matters is the line between those who love the cross of Jesus and those who reject it. That's what Paul wants them to see. Point number two, and Paul's focus in verses 10 to 16 is the only way to cross it. The only way across the line from one who rejects the cross of Jesus to one who loves the cross of Jesus. Well, it's not what you might expect. In verse 10, Paul shifts his focus in this direction. He's been talking about the wisdom that the mature receive. Now he talks about how they receive it. How does a person who doesn't love the cross who's actually put off by the cross, become a person who loves the cross, who sees God's plan to save and is drawn in by it. And here it's another contrast that Paul's going to draw for us. Another contrast between the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God. See, the wisdom of this age, it's always come as an accomplishment. The wisdom of this age is something you gain because you worked your way towards it, because you thought your way or innovated your way towards being on the inside of that, of that, of that community. And the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, it only ever comes as a free gift. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. These things we got for free. The good news we could never have imagined for ourselves. This counterintuitive, shameful wisdom of the cross we would never have accepted on our own. We see for the wisdom it is because God revealed it to us through the Spirit. That's the main idea. Paul unpacks it in two steps. I want to show you. Two steps unpacking this simple main idea that you only ever cross this line because of what God shows you through His Spirit. Step number one is verses 10 to 13. Through his spirit, God shows us who he is. Through his spirit, God shows us who he is. He's the only one who knows himself. And for anybody else to know him, he'd have to communicate himself to him. Look at verse 11. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? You can see what he's getting to. I mean, I I can see this in my own heart and life. I'm a mystery to myself half the time. I barely know what I'm thinking, much less why. And if you're you're talking about getting outside of your own heart and mind into someone else's heart and mind, that's a big leap. And probably you've learned the hard way how dangerous it is to speculate and assume that you know what's going on inside of somebody else. They're a different person from you. I don't care how good you think you are at reading people, you are not as good as you think you are. (laughs) And if if you want to understand them, they're going to have to open up, tell you who they are, tell you what they're like. You have to listen well. That's true in my marriage, and we've known each other since we were kids. We've shared a life for 20 years, and we're still regularly 
surprised at how one another sees things or what one another wants. And if that's true for people, including people who've known each other as long and as well as as I've known my wife, how much more true would it be between species? Your goldfish has no idea what it is to be you. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but you don't know what your cat is thinking either. I know you think you do, but you really don't. You have no idea. Now, now let's talk about the difference between God and his creatures. Well, that's a difference that, that, that's unlike any other. You've got a better chance of getting inside the brain of your goldfish. If, if, if we're going to close that gap, well, God, is, God who alone understands God is going to have to show us who he is. And that's exactly what Paul says he's chosen to do. His spirit, God's spirit, Paul says, searches everything, verse 10, even the depths of God. And yeah, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But look at verse 12. We have received the spirit who is from God. Not the spirit of the world. We've received the spirit who is from God. Why would God give us his spirit? Verse 12. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The God who alone knows God chose to show us who he is by his spirit. Pure gift. That's grace. And now in verse 13, Paul, backed by the spirit of God, imparts his message about who God is, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit who interprets spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that brings us to the second step. The first step is through his spirit, God shows us who he is. That's how we know him. That's our only hope at knowing him. The second step is through his spirit, God gives us eyes to see him. He doesn't just show us who he is. He has to give us the eyes to see him. That's verses 14 to 16. It isn't enough for him to just reveal himself. We need new equipment to see what he's showing us. If we're going to have any chance to embrace what he says, to love what he tells us, he's got to give us new hearts. That's what Paul is getting at in these next verses. When he talks about interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, once again, he's not switching into a new class of Christian. Like you've got the non-spiritual Christians and the spiritual ones, and the spiritual ones are the ones who get it. He's talking about anybody who is a Christian, who's got God's spirit as a gift so that they freely understand the things given by God. That's what makes someone a spiritual person, as Paul means it. And in verse 14, he shows us why this matters so much. The natural person, he says doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He doesn't understand them because, Paul says, they're spiritually discerned. In other words, much of what God had planned, he put out there for all to see. Christ lived, taught, died, and even rose again in public. When he died on the cross, the people who saw it, they saw a hidden wisdom now playing out in front of them. When the apostles preached about what all that meant, those who heard those sermons heard those truths interpreted. But most everybody who saw it and most everybody who heard those sermons said, thanks, but no thanks. That's not for us. I don't think so. They saw what the Spirit revealed on one level. They didn't embrace it on an inner level. 
One of my best teachers in graduate school was a Jewish woman who taught New Testament. She knew the contents of the New Testament backwards and forwards. She wrote books about Jesus. She was an incredible teacher with a wonderfully sharp mind. She understood Paul's teachings intellectually. She taught classes on 1 Corinthians. She got the message in, in some ways better than most Christians. But she never saw the teaching as beautiful as, as for her, as true in a once-for-all universal sense. See, here's what Paul's getting at. Understanding with the mind the teaching about Jesus, cross, about God's plan to save sinners, that's not the problem. Getting it into our heads so that we understand the words, not the issue. It's not that it doesn't make sense. To say that it isn't wise in the eyes of the world is to say they don't like it. It doesn't sound plausible. It doesn't sound like something they should trust. And that's, that's all of us by nature, the natural man. So how does, how does someone who, who's a natural man come to discern the meaning and the beauty of what Christ has done spiritually? God would have to give them some new equipment. God would have to give them his spirit, not just to show them what's true, but to cause them to love it. One of the, one of the most helpful writers and former pastors uh, to me on this idea has been Jonathan Edwards. He talked about this a lot. He used the analogy of, of honey. You know, it's one thing to, to look at honey with your eyes and see what color it is. It's another thing to hear someone talk about honey and understand, oh, it's, it tastes sweet. They, say, they told me it tastes sweet. It must be sweet. It's another thing to put a spoonful into your mouth and taste the sweetness of honey. Then you know with a different sense what it is that honey is sweet. And Edward says, you know, to, to, to see the sweetness of the things of God, to see the sweetness and beauty of the cross, we need a new spiritual sense. If you want to perceive the color blue, you can't do that without the sense of sight. Blue doesn't have a smell. It doesn't have a touch or a feel. If, if the only senses you've got working are your sense of smell and your sense of touch or feel, you'll probably say blue doesn't exist at all. It's not real. I can't sense it. Similarly, the cross, it has to be spiritually discerned. You need a spiritual sense to see it. And that is the free gift of grace God has given to every Christian. They wouldn't be a Christian otherwise. You need the mind of Christ, verse 16. And that's what God's spirit has been given to give us. Now, if you're here exploring Christianity, I bet I know what you're thinking. <laughs> that sounds pretty convenient. So I've, I don't see anything. This isn't all adding up. And you're telling me the only reason is that I'm just blind to it. it sounds like an airtight system. And if that's what you're thinking, I can see how it comes off that way. Uh, let me just tell you two things if that's what you're thinking. First, there, I'm not saying there's no point in evaluating other things about Christianity. That there's not evidence that's worth considering. 
that you shouldn't use your reason to the best of your ability. I think you should. It's a wonderful thing to do. I do that myself. It reinforces my faith to consider arguments, especially from history and especially related to the resurrection of Jesus that undergird and support the things that I believe are true that the Bible talks about. By all means, do it. What I am saying is that that won't ever be enough. That won't be enough. Best case scenario, going to the evidence and the reasons is a draw. Going to to reasons for faith can eliminate misunderstandings you might have. You might see it that it wasn't what you thought, that the claims that we're making and the things that we're holding to aren't what you thought they were. That could be good to do. You, You might come away thinking it isn't as ridiculous as I thought it was. I can see how people get there. That's good to do. But the best you can hope for from that way of coming at this is a draw. Getting across the line to where you love what Jesus offers, including, especially including what he did on the cross, that only comes as a gift of grace. So let me encourage you with this. Why don't you ask him for that gift and see what happens? Why don't you take the risk? What do you have to lose to pray and say, God, if you're there, God, if this is true, would you show me? Better yet, why don't you tell some of us who are Christians here today that you're planning to pray like that and we'll pray that with you. And why don't we see what happens? If you're a Christian here today and you've heard all I've just said about how a person gets over the line, do you see what this means for you? It means you have absolutely nothing to be proud of and every reason to pray to God for his help. It means you have nothing to be proud of. If the cross seems beautiful to you, you got that gift for free. Not just the gift of Christ coming to die, but even the gift of the Spirit so that you can see it and love it. We stand looking down on no one when we stand in Christ. We are beggars, empty-handed, claiming the things that God has given us. And not just what he's given us, but the, the ability to see it and to love it. And do you see how this thing, this theme here, what we need the spirit for drives us to pray. And one of my favorite prayers in all the Bible is Ephesians chapter one. Let me, let me, let me point you there. Ephesians one, Paul is writing this letter, another letter to another group of friends, another church that he'd founded. And, and he tells them what he prays for them. And it's, it's almost exactly out of first Corinthians chapter two. If you believe what Paul says he believes about how the Spirit opens up eyes to see, Ephesians chapter 1 is what you pray. Listen to this. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Does that sound familiar? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's a a spiritual sense. He wants them to have new eyes to see that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul's praying that for Christians because he wants more and more and more and more of that. Friends, we will never see through all the way to the bottom of this well, the well that is God's goodness and grace to us in Jesus. There is always more to see and to love. So there is no more foundational prayer for us as Christians than this one right here. Let me encourage you to memorize it. Let me encourage you to start every day with it. Pray this prayer for your friends and family who don't yet believe. Father, open the eyes of their heart so they can know what are the riches you have in store for those who trust in you. 
Pray this prayer over every Sunday gathering as you prepare to come in here on a Sunday morning. Oh, Father, open the eyes of our hearts. It's just talk. They're just blowing hot air up there if you don't do that. Pray this prayer before you open your Bible each day. Same prayer. When you open it, wherever part of it you're reading, you know what you're going to need that day to get much out of that Bible reading? You're going to need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you can see the hope that's there for you. Pray that he'll open those eyes. And, and when you're praying for your friends at church, as we encourage you to do, praying through the membership directory, you know, maybe you don't even know half of them yet. Maybe you're brand new here. You don't know three quarters of them yet. You know what you can pray for those people you don't know when you see their name and their face? Father, would you please open the eyes of their heart? Would you enlighten them so that they know the hope that you've called them to? Would you give them wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, to see all their life through who Jesus is to them? Would you pray that, friends? For me, would you pray that for, for all of us and make a commitment to do it daily? What if the Lord answered that prayer over and over again for us in our church? Let's pray now together this same prayer that he will do this work that he sent his spirit to do. Father, all our hope is in you. Not just what you've sent your son here to do on the cross, but in the work that you've sent your spirit here to do in our hearts. All our hope is in you. We have nothing to boast in accept who you are for us. And we pray that you give us the eyes to see it. In Jesus' name, amen.